Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for the blessings of the day. We thank you for the blessings within our lives, our families, our children, this assembly, uh, those here. We uh, thank you for having a roof over our head and food to eat and just the basics that so many take for granted that we would never do so. Father, we pray as the days become evil that you would watch over us, guide us, direct our ways, protect us, be with our families, our children especially. Father, we give you praise and we honor you and, and always we pray that what we do and what we say would always be pleasing to you. And Father, we give you all praise now and all honor and all recognition for all things. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Amen. So uh, certainly a blessing to have everybody here. I'd like to extend a uh, greetings to those online. For today, as you can see on the slide here, I'm going to speak about Catholicism and Islam and how I believe they play an important role with end-time prophecy. Now, before that, I want to say this message is focused on the organizations or the institutions of Catholicism and Islam and not on the worshipers themselves. How be it deceived, I believe that there are many, many good people within the Roman Church and also even within Islam. So certainly do not want to condemn those within these religions. So I'm focused on the institutions. Again, Catholicism and Islam, the Roman Church. With that said, I do believe that there is compelling evidence showing a connection between the Roman Church and Islam and how they may play an important part in end-time prophecy. In this message, we're going to begin with the woman of Revelation 17. Now, based on the evidence, I believe that the woman of Revelation 17 is the Roman Church. We're going to see reasons for this. So we're going to begin with Revelation 17, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 7. It says, And there came one of the seven angels with, which had the seven vials. Of course, this, these are the last plagues. The seals, the trumpets, and the vials are the last ones to be poured out. And talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show you unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman set upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now we know that this is the beast, by the way. We see that in Revelation 13. The beast that rises up the first beast this is a description of that beast. And it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So this is a title we find attached to this woman. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yahshua. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Why are you marveling? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. There are several important points I want to bring out here. To begin with, we see a description of this woman riding on this beast. It's important to realize that there's a separation between the woman and the beast. Again, I believe that the woman here may represent the Roman church, while the beast, I believe, may represent Islam. And we're going to see evidence, I believe, for that as we go through this message, evidence showing that the beast symbolizes Islam, or a revived caliphate, as we'll see near the end. So, what does the woman riding on the beast symbolize? What does this represent? Well, I believe it may symbolize a coalition or unification between these two. It may symbolize a unification or a coalition between Catholicism or the Roman Church and a revived caliphate. You know, we're seeing evidence of this, by the way. We're seeing more and more evidence of this melding within Islam and the Roman Church. 
more efforts are being made to form some sort of unification, coalition between these two faiths. I want to share with you just a few articles. I'm going to go through these rather quickly here. But three articles, and they're all very well um, documented. First one is from the United States Institute of Peace. And this was February 19th, 2019. The article is entitled, Pope Francis and the Cradle of Islam, What Might It Bring? And these are all very pro-Catholicism, by the way. It says, Pope Francis's recent sojourn in the Arabian Peninsula was a powerful symbol advanced for interfaith dialogue. And that's a very important thing to kind of note, their interfaith dialogue. I do believe that they are trying to form one faith. In fact, there is a faith of melding already of Catholicism and Islam. The first visit by Roman Catholic pontiff to the original homeland of the Islamic faith. Francis joined eminent Muslim, Jewish, and other Christian clerics in an appeal for the communal coexistence of desperately needed by our world suffering violence and persecution across humanity's religious divides. The visit's moving imagery included Christians and Muslims together attending the first papal mass on the peninsula. So again, we see this concept of trying to form this interfaith dialogue. And again, I believe that this is just the beginning of a one-world system, as we will find, I believe, through Islam or maybe a melding of Islam and Catholicism. Another, another article here, this is uh, by Vatican News. So it's their source. February 4th, 2019, Pope and the Grand Imam, Historic Declaration of Peace, Freedom, and Women's Rights. And of course, we all know there are no such that there is no such thing as women's rights within Islam. They will profess that, but we know his we just know on the ground there's absolutely no tolerance for, for women or any type of freedom. It says here the document of humanity fraternity for world peace and living together signed on Monday afternoon by in Abu Dhabi by Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of Al-Hazar, Ahmed El-Taib, is not only a milestone in relations between Christianity and Islam, but also represents a message with a strong impact on the international scene. In the pre- uh, preface, after affirming that faith leads a believer to see the other, a brother or sister, to be supported and loved. So we find here that this concept, if you are a Muslim, you should also view Catholics as a brother or sister. And the reciprocal would be true. If you are a Muslim, you should see a Roman Catholic as a brother or sister. Or we, know his, we know biblically this is not the way it works. Biblically, only those immersed are brothers and sisters in Messiah. This text is spoken of as a text that has been given honest and serious thought which invites all persons to have faith in G.O.D. and faith in human fraternity to unite and work together. The document opens with a series of invocations of Pope and the Grand Imam speak, quote, in the name of G.O.D. who hath created all human beings equal in rights, duties, and dignity, in the name of innocent human life that G.O.D. is forbidden to kill, in the name of the poor, orphans, widows, refugees, exiles, and all victims of wars and persecutions, Al-Hazar, together with the Catholic Church, declare the adoption of of a culture of dialogue as the path, mutual cooperation, as the code of conduct, reciprocal understanding as the method and standard. But again, the key here for me is this concept of a brother or sister. I'm sorry, but we are not a brother or sister to Muslims. And we are not even a brother or sister to Roman Catholics. But here, again, they're trying to say it does not matter, this interfaith dialogue. We are all the same. And that's simply not true. So a third article here, how Pope Francis is transitioning Catholic-Muslim relationships or relations. This is from the Jesuit Review, so a Catholic source, March 6, 2021, so a fairly recent article. It says, I suppose the church really committed to dialogue and positive engagement at the Second Vatican Council with a famous declaration of the relationship of the church to non-Christian religions. So this, that's really the key here, is forming a relationship to a non-Christian religions, and the main one in this case would be Islam. There's a paragraph, and of course it was Islam, and opening up possibilities for good, productive relationships. Of course, it was prefigured by some important historical figures in the church who found positive ways to engage with Islam. St. Francis of Assisi is one of the key figures here. Pope Francis 
taking the name of Francis of Assisi when he became Pope was in many ways a statement of intent with regard to openness to the Muslim world. I think that's now being seen very closely. So those are just three articles. There's many other articles. If you scour the internet, you'll find how there is a desire to meld and to certainly form a coalition or some sort of alliance between these two unholy religions. And again, this is not an attack or certainly not even an affront or, or a discussion on, on the worshipers, but on the organizations. Pope Francis has publicly embraced the Quran, and he has also defended Islam as a religion of peace. Well, this notion of Islam being a religion of peace is simply untrue. We know that. We understand because we see evidence of that Islam, by the nature of Islam, is not a religion of peace. Islam is a religion of violence. It began with a, with a sword. It was established by the sword. It is spread by the sword. And it continues to be spread by violence today. Now, based on what I see in the Bible, I believe this trend of the church embracing Islam may be prophetic. May be prophetic. And it's an important point I really want to drive home, that we see this drive, this desire. And we saw it with the previous pope, but we certainly see it even more with Pope Francis. I believe Pope Francis is radically changing the church. He is a very liberal pope from what I can see, changing the church morally, certainly. Again, as we see in Revelation 17, the woman rides on the beast, showing a possible coalition or unification between these two faiths. So what further evidence do we find here in Revelation for the woman representing Catholicism or the Roman Church? What else do we find here that may point to the Roman Church symbolizing this woman? It says here that this woman rides on many waters. According to Revelation 17, verse 15, the waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. That's what Scripture says. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. As we know, the Roman Church represents multiple nations. The Roman Church represents multiple ethnicities, and the Roman Church represents many languages. According to Wikipedia, it has a membership of 1.29 billion people. So it represents many, many nations, many ethnicities. It sits on the waters, as we find scripturally. It also says here that this woman is responsible for spreading fornication. What is the meaning of fornication? Well, the word fornication is from the Greek pernia, very common word, a very broad word. Strong's defines pornea as holotry, including idolatry or incest, figuratively idolatry. I believe that the word fornication refers to idolatry here, or to false worship, to the apostasy we find within the Roman church. In fact, here's part of the definition we find from Thayer's. It says this, metaphorically, the worship of idols used of the defilement of idolatry. That's, again, from the Thayer's lexicon, Greek lexicon. So the word fornication, pornea, here likely refers to false worship, including to idol worship, as we find from the definition of Thayer's. I think we would all agree that when we look at the platform or the system of worship with the Roman church, Catholicism, that we see false worship, that we see apostasy. They are the ones responsible for this fornication. It was a Roman church who adopted so many of the heresies we see in nominal worship. And as we know, nominal worship, Protestants alike, most all denominations, nearly every denomination on earth have followed the ways of Catholicism, including with Sunday worship. We also see here another clue. It says here that this woman is responsible for the blood and persecution in many believers. It's responsible for the blood and for the persecution in many believers. Whereas many of us know, the church has a very long history of oppression and tyranny, especially against those who disagreed with its ideology. They would burn people to the stake. They would do horrific things to those who disagreed with the church, especially historically. Well, there's dispute on the actual numbers of those who suffered under the papacy. There's no disputing that millions have suffered Millions upon millions have suffered. I want to share two quick quotes with you. So the first one is from a book titled History of the Rise and Influence of the Spirit of Rationalism in Europe 
on page 32, it says this. It says that the church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that's ever existed among mankind. will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. It is impossible to form a complete conception of the multitude of her victims. And it is quite certain that no powers of imagination can adequately realize their sufferings. So no institution on earth, it's saying, has caused more grief and tyranny than the Church of Rome. Now, one more reference here. This is from the History of Romanism, page 541 and also 542. It's from 1871. It says, from the birth of Popery in 606 to the present time, it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 million of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors, an average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery. According to, again, the history of Romanism, the Roman church is responsible for the deaths of 50 million people. I will say that estimates vary depending on who you consult, what you look at, but I've seen estimates much larger, including 68 million, 100 million, 120 million, and 150 million. So again, we really don't know, but millions upon millions have suffered under the Roman Church. They are guilty, the organization, the institution of the Catholicism is guilty of the millions of believers. Based on this, I believe that we can certainly see here how the papacy or Catholicism would fulfill what we find here, that they are responsible for the blood of the saints. They are responsible for the blood of many believers throughout the history of mankind, again, especially from a historical standpoint. Now, in Revelation 17, verse 18, we find another clue as to who or what this woman represents. We're going to get very specific now with what this woman represents. Revelation 17, verse 18 says this, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. What did we learn here? Or number one, we see here that this woman represents a great city. And number two, we find that this great city reigns over the kings of the earth. For years, I wondered if this was a reference to New York City and possibly to the headquarters of the UN. But the issue is, for me, it doesn't fit many of the other prophecies. It simply doesn't add up. For example, I wouldn't consider New York City responsible for the apostasy we see with the nominal worship today, the fornication, the idolatry. I mean, New York City has its issues, but certainly is not responsible for the apostasy we see within the church now. I also have a hard time seeing the connection between New York City and the, and, and, and the murder and the persecution of many believers. I don't see how New York City would follow in that vein. Based on these prophecies, I believe that the city of Rome is a much more likely possibility. The city of Rome, I believe, is the city spoken of here in Revelation. We know that Rome is a great city with a very long and complicated history. We also know that within the modern city of Rome is the Vatican City, which for those who may not know, is a sovereign state. For those unfamiliar with Vatican City, it's actually quite small. It's roughly 110 acres in size, with a population of about 1,000. So the Vatican City itself is very small. Now, the city of Rome proper is about 496 square miles in size, with a population of a point, uh, 2.8 million. But when we include the metropolitan area of Rome, we have a population of 4.3 million. So it's a vast, vast city. Again, we see here prophetically that this great city will rule over the kings of the earth. For me, I tend to view this more from a historical standpoint. We know in the last 2,000 years that the city of Rome, through the papacy, has exerted great power and influence over the nations of this earth and over the kings of this earth. In fact, historically, when we consider the Roman Empire and the papacy, I think it would be hard to find a city more dominant within the history of mankind than Rome. Rome has ruled over the kings of the earth for 2,000 years, and in many ways continues to do so. But I don't believe with the same vigor, but certainly they still continue to have dominance over this earth. I want to consider one more prophecy relating to this woman in Revelation 8. 
Revelation now. I'm going to read this out of the scriptures here because I'm going to read several passages. So Revelation 18, and we're going to start with verse 8. And here we find a reference to this woman and what's going to happen near the end of this age. So I'm going to read verses 8 through 19. It says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is Yahweh Elohim who judges her. And the kings of the earth who has committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and gold, stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and of marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusts after are departed from thee. And all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the captain and ships and sailors and as many as trade by the sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads, and they cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. So what do we find here? Number one, this great city will be judged, it says, in one hour. I believe this shows the quickness the quickness to Yahweh's judgment, the suddenness. Number two, the merchants of the earth were made rich through her wantingness, through her gluttony. You know, for me, this indicates that this great city will be a significant importer of goods. According to encyclopedia.com, the Vatican imports almost everything and exports almost nothing. So the Vatican City consumes and doesn't really produce any exports. Now, what are some of the imports we find here? It mentions ivory precious woods, brass, iron, marble, cinnamon, frankincense. For me, many of these items are very costly and lavish. And I believe we see this in the city of Rome, this lavishness, especially from a historical standpoint. The city of Rome under the historical papacy was was, um, very lavish and very ornate. And we also find evidence here that this great city may be positioned along a coastline. We find descriptions here how the ships will be afar off in the sea and will watch as the city burns and will weep because they were made rich through this city. Now, where exactly is is the city of Rome located? Where is Rome located? Well, as you can see on the map here, the city of Rome is located about 15 miles inland of the Tyrrhenian Sea. Certainly close enough for ships standing afar off could watch as this great city burns to the ground. I want to summarize now some of the major prophecies we find 
of the woman and the Roman church, some of the similarities here. Both are connected to many nations, ethnicities and languages. We saw that connection because, again, the woman sits in the waters. Both are responsible for spreading fornication, or as I believe, false worship. Both are guilty of shedding the blood of many believers, which we certainly know historically this was true of the Roman church. Both are identified as a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. We certainly know historically the Roman, uh, the city of Rome ruled over the kings of the earth through the papacy. And both seem to be positioned along a coastline, as we see in Revelation 18. So we see so many similarities here between this woman of Revelation 17 and the Roman church. I want to transition now and focus on the beast. So we've talked about the woman. And again, for me, I believe we see ample evidence to draw the conclusion that this is very likely the Roman church. I want to now focus on the beast. So where do we find a connection between the beast and Islam? Where do we see this? We actually see many signs, many indications of this. But before we look at those, Revelation 17, I want to look at two crucial passages. Some crucial passages, um, building a foundation, showing how Yahweh works. And both of these are from the book of Daniel. And I'm going to read this one here from Scripture, because again, there's quite a few verses I want to read. So Daniel 2, and by the way, Daniel, for those who don't know, Daniel and Revelation share many, many things in common. In fact, it's hard to understand Revelation in some ways without an understanding of Daniel. So Daniel 2, and we're going to read verses 32 through 44. So in verse 32, it begins there by saying, The image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass and silver and the gold, broken in pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, and that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And of course, we know that's a reference to Yahshua's coming in the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom. Verse 36 says, this is a dream. So Nebuchadnezzar, he saw this dream. And he's telling Daniel this dream, because Daniel is going to interpret this for him. And he says, this is a dream, and we will tell the interpretation there before the king. Thou, king, art a king of kings, for the Allah of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art the head of gold. So Daniel here identifies the head of gold as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. And after thee shall arise another kingdom and fair to thee and another third kingdom of brass which will, shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay." And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. It's important to note that. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the Ella of heaven set up a kingdom, but shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And of course, again, we know in verse 44, this is a reference to 
Yahshua's coming, and to the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom, which will be forever, will be time out of mind. The image we see here again came from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And as we know, the prophet Daniel here was able to interpret his dream like Joseph in the book of Genesis. So what exactly did Nebuchadnezzar see here? We saw a metal man with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and toes mixed with iron and clay. According to Daniel, what does all this mean? Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar here first that he represents the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar represents the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom is on top. It represents, again, the head. We also know prophetically that the chest and arms of silver symbolizes the Medo-Persian Empire. I believe that the two arms there represents the two different peoples that made up the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. We also know that the belly and thighs of brass symbolizes the empire of Greece with the legs of iron representing Rome. So this is the interpretation of this metal man that was seen by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. As we know, historically, Rome had two halves. They had a western half through Rome, an eastern half through Constantinople. We know historically that the western half of Rome fell in 476 CE, but the eastern half, we know, continued on for another thousand years, for another thousand years until its defeat by the Ottoman Turks in 1453. Now, the eastern half also became known through time as the Byzantine Empire, but again, it was part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the eastern half, which again became known as the Byzantine Empire. Now, the last thing we find here, the ten toes. It says here that the ten toes were made of two items. One is iron and the other is clay. It's important to realize that these toes are prophetic. These toes are prophetic. They are not historic. These toes have not occurred yet. As we'll see in Revelation 17, the toes or the kings will rule with the man of sin. I'll show evidence of this later in this message. So what does the iron and clay here symbolize? Or as we see here through the prophecy, through the interpretation of Daniel, it represents strength through the iron and weakness through the clay. Obviously, the iron symbolizes the strength, and again, the clay symbolizes weakness. What does it mean here also when it says that these ten toes will, quote, not mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall, uh, but they shall not cleave one to another? So they will mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they will not cleave. For me, this sounds an awful, like, a lo- awful lot uh, like of, of what we're seeing with millions of Muslims throughout the world, who refuses to assimilate within their respective countries. We see many examples of this within Europe. Many, many examples of this within Europe. Not only do we have no-go Islamic areas within Europe, but we have Sharia courts, Islamic courts set up alongside European courts. Sharia courts within the judicial system of these European nations. And as I understand it, If a decision comes out, the European courts will respect that decision, even though, again, it is contrary to many of the values we find within the judicial system of the European nations. According to scholarship, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. The Bible says that Ishmael would be a wild man and that his hand would be against every man. In many ways, I believe that's what we see within the Arab world, They're either fighting themselves or they're fighting an enemy. But they're always fighting. There's always chaos within the Middle East. And I believe this is symbolized through the iron and clay, this this division. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out here. This is an important point. It's important to notice here that we see a succession of empires. One followed the other. I want you to notice that. Babylon was defeated by the Persians. The Persians was defeated by 
Greece. And Greece was defeated by Rome. We find a succession of nations. This is an important concept because I believe it's crucial in the understanding of Revelation 17 of the beast and the kings we find within that passage. Now, before we go to Revelation 17, I want to look at one more passage, one more prophecy in Daniel, very similar to what we find here. And this is in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 1 through 7. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and vision. So now Daniel is dreaming. Daniel is receiving the first passage there in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar received the dream. Now we find Daniel receiving a dream very similar to what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw my night, my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And the man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I beheld in Loa another, like a leopard, which upon had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with feet of it. And it was diverse, it was different, it says, from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So what do we see here? Again, we see another vision, we see a, a dream this time by Daniel himself. We find here four beasts with four different characteristics or attributes. What is the meaning here of Daniel 7? What is the meaning of this dream? What is the meaning of these beasts that we find here? These four beasts represent four different empires, beginning with Babylon. So let's take a look and consider each one separately. The first beast here, it says, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I believe the line here symbolizes strength. The wings of an eagle symbolizes the speed at which the Babylonian Empire grew during that time. The second beast is like a bear, it says, had three ribs in its mouth, and it says it devoured much flesh. I believe the bear here represents the strength, again, of Persia, while the three ribs symbolizes the three kingdoms that Persia overcame. That would include Midia, Lydia, and Babylonia. Now, the third beast, it says, is like a leopard, and it had four wings on its back. The leopard here, again, represents, I believe, strength and speed, specifically the strength and speed of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. It says it had four wings, symbolizing the four divisions and the four heads. This represents the division, the division of the Grecian Empire. As we know, when Alexander died at the age of 32 quite young, really, but accomplished a great deal within his lifetime. Greece was divided amongst his four generals. Now, the two more notable generals was uh, Seleucus, which received Syria and uh, Babylon, so the Middle East, and uh, Ptolemy, which was uh, given Egypt. So we have the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires here after Alexander's death. Now, we also see here a fourth beast, a fourth beast. It's described here as a dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly diverse, different from all the others before it. We also see here that this fourth, fourth beast has ten horns, ten horns. The horns here correspond to the toes in Daniel 2. We got toes, we got horns, and we're going to see kings. So we got ten toes, ten horns, and ten kings. They're all the same thing. They all symbolize the same, the same thing. And they all exist during the time of the man of sin. 
Well, many believe this. For the beast symbolizes Rome. We believe here that it symbolizes the empire of the beast through these ten toes, through these ten kings, through these ten horns, because these horns do not exist until the time of the end. In fact, Bollinger in his companion Bible says this. He says, quote, not Rome, for it, for it has the ten horns when it is first seen. Moreover, these ten horns are not till the time of the end. This fourth beast, therefore, belongs to the time of the end. So this fourth beast is not historic, it's prophetic. It is not Rome, as so many believe. It is the system of the beast that we find in the book of Revelation. Now, before moving on, I, wanna, I want you to notice, again, we find a succession of nations. Just as we found in Daniel 2, we see again that we, that we find a succession of nations. We find a reference to Babylon. We find a reference to Persia. And we find a reference to Greece. And the one conquered the other. We know historically that the Persians conquered the Babylonians and Greece conquered the Persians. Greece conquered the Persians. Well, let's now move on to Revelation 17. A lot of legwork there, but I think it's important to understand this idea of succession of nations. So if you get nothing, got nothing out of what I just went through, remember succession of nations. We see this pattern of succession of nations. We saw it in Daniel 2. We also saw the same in Daniel 7. So here in Revelation 17, I believe we find something similar. It says, here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So again, we go back to the woman. And the woman, based on the evidence I see, symbolizes Catholicism or the Roman church. So we find here that the woman church sits upon this beast. It says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the others yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. So we find an eighth beast after the seventh. And is of the seventh. So we find a connection between the seventh and the eighth beast that goes into perdition, it says. So we see here that the beast is symbolized with seven mountains. And it says that these seven mountains represent seven kings. Now, kings can also be kingdoms. And I believe that's what we find here. We find seven kingdoms. For example, and we know that we know that the mountain often refers to kingdom. In Micah 4, we find there that it says that Yahweh's mountain shall be established on the top of all the other mountains, meaning that Yahweh's kingdom is going to be above every nation on earth. But it's descri- described in Micah 4 as a mountain. We see the same thing here. But these mountains are seven kings or kingdoms. Now, in this case, it represents seven kingdoms. It says five are fallen. Now, listen to this. Five are fallen. One existed during the time of this prophecy. And another would come later. And we also find that there would be an eighth, which would be of the seventh. So there's a connection between the seventh and eighth beast. Now, do we know what kingdoms may be represented here? Now, some... By the way, some will say that this refers to the seven hills of Rome. I guess they would in that case. Hills don't go away unless you remove them. I guess they would in that case. But here we find that five were fallen by the time of this prophecy. Five did not exist. One existed and one would come. So here's a chart from the fourth edition. It's kind of hard to see on the PowerPoint here, but I'll go through this with you. So seven kingdoms here. We have Egypt, Assyria, Neo-Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the Ottoman Empire. That's the seven kingdoms as we understand it. So the five that were fallen, this would represent the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonian, Persian, and the Grecian. The one that existed during the time of this prophecy, that would be Rome. Rome was the empire during the time this prophecy was given. And again, we believe that the Ottoman Turks would be the seventh or would come after the Rome, Roman Empire. Now, instead of possibly Egypt and Assyria, some have speculated that maybe we should insert here the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. 
And maybe we should. We're not sure. But we find all of these empires existed before this prophecy. And that's the key. All of the empires, all of the kingdoms that existed, existed prior to this prophecy. So these kingdoms all existed before this prophecy was given. And again, the one that would have existed during this time would have been Rome. And the kingdom to come, the seventh, we believe would represent the Ottoman Empire. Now, the seventh kingdom here is the one generally in dispute. Many will say that this is a revived Roman Empire. Again, the woman, I believe, in Revelation 17 is the Roman church. The woman is not the beast, and the beast is not the woman. I believe that they are two separate entities. The one rides upon another. The one supports the other. The woman, again, is the Roman church. The beast is not the woman. The beast is something different. Now, we also saw this idea of succession, this concept of succession, how one empire would conquer the other empire, and then the empire after that would conquer the the, uh, previous empire. So if that applies here, who conquered the Roman Empire? Who conquered the Roman Empire? Some contend that Rome fell to the barbarians. Others will say that it continued through the Roman church. But historically, who conquered the Roman Empire? Well, again, the western half of Rome fell in 476 CE. The eastern half continued for another thousand years until its defeat by who? By the Ottoman Turks. And the eastern empire was the eastern empire of what? It was the eastern empire of the Roman Empire. It continued for a thousand years after the western empire fell, and it was only defeated by the Ottoman Turks. I believe that the Ottoman Turks is the fulfillment of this seventh kingdom. Succession, succession. The Ottoman Turks defeated the Romans. As we see through history, Roman was succeeded by the Ottoman Empire, which I believe makes them the seventh kingdom, from which the man of sin, or the eighth king or kingdom, will arise from. So based on this, it's possible that the fulfillment of the eighth kingdom will be a revived caliphate, will be a revived Islamic caliphate, similar to the Ottoman Empire. I want to share with you a quote from author Walid Silvat from the book uh, God's War on Terror. And then we'll talk just a little bit about this man. So here's a quote. It says, The empire of the Antichrist will not be a new empire. Rather, it will be the revival of a previous great empire that will have suffered what the Bible calls a fatal head wound. This empire is the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which replaced the Roman Empire after the fall of its remaining eastern section. Now, before we talk about what he says here, I'm going to talk just a little bit about this man. Who is Walid Shobat? It's kind of interesting. He was born to an Islamic father and to a Christian mother. He was raised as a Muslim and even identified himself in his early years, early years as an Islamic terrorist. So this man was entrenched within the Islamic faith. Now, he eventually left Islam and he converted to Christianity. Now, why is this important? It's important because he provides somewhat of a unique perspective. Most Bible interpreters, most who study eschatology, will do so from a European standpoint. They focus on the UN, they focus on Europe, but they don't focus on the Middle East. For me, focusing on the Middle East makes much more sense. Everything we find historically and prophetically generally points to the Middle East. Now, again, we have exceptions because I do think the Roman church symbolizes this woman. So, according to Walid, from his perspective, he believes that the Seventh Empire represents the Ottoman Turks and that the Eighth Empire will be a revived Islamic caliphate similar to the Ottoman Empire. From what I see prophetically and historically, I tend to agree with this that the Eighth is and will be a revived Islamic caliphate. Now, in verse 2, or 12, I should say, we find 10 kings. So we've already seen these kings twice. We saw these kings as 10 toes in Daniel 2. 
We saw these ten kings as ten horns in Daniel 7. Now we see these as ten kings in Revelation 17, 12 through 13. It says, in the ten horns, so ten horns, which I'll start, so ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So based on what we find here, what is the purpose of these ten kings? It says here that they give their power and strength to the beast. They give their power and strength to this anti-Messiah. They give their power and strength to this son of perdition. They support the man of sin. Do we know prophetically what nations these ten kings may represent? Do we know who these kings may represent? Or many assume that these ten kings represent the European Union. Well, one issue with this is that currently, currently there's 27 members of the European Union. Now, that could change. But certainly we see 17 nations too many. And I believe we see the wrong location as well. Many years ago, a minister named Ralph Henry, I believe this is correct, by the way, introduced another uh, possibility to my wife's late grandfather, Elder Don Mansager. He noticed that Psalms 83 mentioned a confederacy of ten specific nations. So let's read that. Psalms 83, 4 through 8. It says, They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. So the purpose of this unification, this alliance, this coalition, is to annihilate the nation of Israel to the point that even their name would not be mentioned. It says, For they have consulted together with one consent. They, have con- they are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Notice here that these ten nations again form a confederacy for one purpose. And that one purpose is for the annihilation of the nation of Israel. Again, to the point that the nation of Israel would be no more remembered or even mentioned. Based on our study, this confederacy, this prophecy has not occurred yet. There's nothing in history which would say this has happened, which means more than likely it's prophetic. We believe here that these ten kingdoms, these ten nations, are likely the same nations represented by the ten toes, the ten horns, and the ten kings that we find in Daniel and Revelation. Now, do we know where these nations are today? Do we know where these nations are today? We're based on archaeology and history. We have a pretty good idea. Well, here's the locations based on the Restoration Study Bible. So Edom would represent southern Jordan. The Ishmaelites would represent the Arabs in general. Moab would represent central Jordan. The Hagarenes would represent Egypt. Gebel would represent northern Lebanon. Ammon would represent northern Jordan. Amalek would represent the Sinai Peninsula. The Philistines would represent the Gaza Strip. Tyre would represent southern Lebanon. And Asher would represent Syria and Iraq. So from this list, what do we find? Number one, we find a list of all Middle Eastern nations. Number two we find that these nations are all today Islamic, and that probably will not change. And number three, they all surround the nation of Israel. They're all around the nation of Israel. I believe that there's a battle coming that may have roots to a man named Ishmael, the father of the Arab people. What we're seeing right now in the Middle East may only be the beginning, and I believe it is. It is only the beginning, especially, and we haven't seen a whole lot in the news here lately with this Erdogan the president of Turkey, but he is determined, I believe, to revive an Ottoman Empire, a caliphate. He is determined to accomplish this. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But we certainly see a push within the Middle East for a revived caliphate. This caliphate, again, existed for 600 years. They haven't forgotten the glory days of this superpower, this Ottoman Empire, and they desire to reestablish this Islamic caliphate. Again, Erdogan is trying very hard to accomplish this goal. 
You know what's interesting? According to Walid Shobat within his book, we find that some within the Islamic world, they're trying to do the same. I'll read another quote here from his book. It says, in 2002, a plan for the reestablishment of the caliphate was written by the Guiding Helper Foundation entitled The Plan for the Return of the Caliphate. According to the plan, the caliph would be assisted in his role by 10-member council of assistant caliphs. Ten members. These assistants or council members are similar ministers in many of today's governments. So, interesting here, we find not only does the Bible speak about a ten-member confederacy, ten kings, ten horns, ten toes, we find even in Islamic world that there are some who desire to do the same thing, to bring back the caliph and then to assist or ten assistant caliphs that would rule with this man. So through this prophecy, we again find a possible coalition, I believe, between Catholicism and Islam. The fact that the woman again rides on the beast shows a likely connection between the two. And I believe that's an important point to understand. The woman is not the beast, and the beast is not the woman, but there is some sort of coalition. There's some sort of connection we find between these two entities. I'm going to close with this. Now, according to Revelation 17, verse 16... I'm going to close with this. This agreement will not last. Revelation 17, verse 16 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these hate the whore, or the, the woman, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So we see here that the ten kings will eventually turn on this woman. The woman rides on the beast. The beast again, represented with these ten kings, will hate the woman and will burn her with fire. So if the woman represents the Roman church in the city of Rome, and the ten kings represent ten Islamic nations, we see here that eventually these nations, these Islamic nations, will burn the city of Rome, will turn and destroy and burn the city of Rome, and I believe destroy the Roman church as we know it. So while prophecy seems to show that the Roman church and Islam will form an agreement, will form a coalition, and we're already seeing that today. We're seeing that right now with Pope Francis. We do see a day when the uh, kings, these, uh, these uh, ten Islamic kings, will destroy the church. I believe this is what we see in Revelation 18, when this great city is burned with fire. It is burned with fire by these kings, and these kings represent, again, the Islamic nations. And it makes sense because we know while Islam may play nice, while they may say the right things, there is violence underneath. Islam will never, never bend to another religion. They will never bend to Christianity. And at the end of the day, I do believe that we will see this coalition. And I believe eventually they will regret this coalition the Roman church, once we find these ten kings turning upon her. Whatever the future holds, when it comes to prophecy, I believe it's important to remember a few things. Number one, it's important to have an open mind. Could I be wrong with this? Certainly I could be wrong with this. And we need to look at the evidence. We always need to look at the evidence on world events, what is happening against Scripture. But again, for me, this certainly seems to follow the pattern we find with the papacy and the Islamic world and this desire, for whatever reason, to have harmony and unification between these two religions. Number two, it's important to prove all things. It's so important to prove all things. Number three, our most important obligation is to prepare ourselves for the coming of Yahshua the Messiah. That is why we're here. It's not to know all things or all mysteries or all prophecies. It's fun to look at these things, to contemplate these items. And again, I believe personally that we do see a connection with Islam and the Roman church. But the most important thing always for believers, and I just feel it's important to always reiterate this, is to focus on Yahweh, focus on his kingdom, focus on us, focus on our lives, making sure that what we're doing is pleasing to the one we worship. Because listen, if, if um, we spend all our time focusing on prophecy and focusing on, on things of this nature, and not on us, and not our, on our own lives, we may be 
found unworthy at the end. So I would just encourage everybody to do that today. I uh, pray that this has been helpful. I pray that maybe you've uh, learned a few things. And without me, I would bless you.